Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to a special Greetings from Atlanta edition of Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I am your host, T. Greg Doucette, and I am broadcasting to you live from the Marriott Marquis Hotel in downtown Atlanta, Georgia. I mentioned in the podcast last week that I was coaching a trial team for my alma mater, the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and that this was competition weekend. So for this podcast, it's going to be a blend of some stuff that we normally do. I had asked for questions so that we could do a What the Fisk episode ahead of time. Uh, We did not get enough of those to do a full episode Uh, But at the same time, I didn't have enough time to put together enough criminal justice fuckery for a full episode, so we're going to merge the two. The first half of the podcast will be a limited uh, variety of criminal justice fuckery. There's still a lot of it here, but it's not comprehensive. I've still probably got about 20 more stories I need to add in. And then instead of a Law 140, I have a quartet of questions that will be a mini what the fisk, hashtag WTFisk. Um, then I'm going to finish recording this, give it to Mike for him to slice and dice, and hopefully he will be able to upload it remotely to WordPress so that hopefully you see this on time. If you see the blog entry but you don't see the audio file, uh, that means that has not been done successfully or I have screwed something up with my settings. But I am in my hotel room with my laptop and my transportable uh, microphone and my earbuds, and I've been told and assured that as long as I don't mess with the uh, spinny knob for the gain on the back of the mic, that everything should sound okay. You might be picking up a little bit of echo because when I record from my apartment, uh, I'm at the table. There's nothing around. It just kind of goes into the mic in open air. I'm currently staring at a wood panel at the desk that is in the hotel room. It's a very nice hotel room. Don't get me wrong. I've enjoyed my presence here, uh, but it's a little weird recording in this particular scenario. So hopefully Mike can clean all of this up. Uh, So again, we're going to do a little bit of criminal justice fuckery. We're going to do four questions for what the fisk, and that will have to tide you over until I can be back in the Bull City, Durham, North Carolina, and record a regular episode in studio next week. Uh, If you have not already done so, oh, sorry, pause, back up, Um, some podcast notes. We did our first quasi e-fundraiser, if you will, begging for patrons on Twitter, Uh, because I need to figure out a way to pay Mike more money so that we can start doing uh, semi-weekly episodes, episodes twice a week, so that he can be not in the studio for hours on end. We can do like two chunks of 30 or 40 minutes a piece instead of this one-time weekly thing. And it turned out very well. So we have now 86 patrons, if you can believe that. That kind of blows my mind. We are more than halfway to our goal. We are 57% to our goal of 150 And once we hit 150 patrons, that should be enough for us to uh, expand from there. So I just want to say thank you to everyone who has signed up. Uh, If you happen to be one of our patrons, check the Patreon page because you will see a picture of my quaint little setup for this episode here in my hotel room. You won't see me. It's just a picture of my setup uh, because I'm currently looking like a ragamuffin because this has been a busy weekend. Okay, so if you have not already done so, please make sure to join the conversation online. Our account on Twitter is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can leave us a comment on our website, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. 
E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you would like to become one of those patrons, you can do so at patreon.com slash Fisk. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash F-S-C-K. So I'm going to skip over the court news and the research news and the federal government news because all that stuff requires a little bit more in-depth analysis than I have the time or patience to compile in another city. Uh, We are going to jump right into the state-by-state criminal justice fuckery, and we're going to start with Alabama because if you listened to last week's episode, you might recall there was a story about Alabama sheriffs taking money that was earmarked for food at the prisons and instead pocketing it themselves. Now, there were several sheriffs mentioned in that piece. The only one I talked about was the guy that stole $100,000 of taxpayer money in a tiny county. Uh, But one of the other sheriffs that was mentioned was a Todd Entrekin of Etowah County. Now, if you clicked the link that was in the show notes, you would have seen questions, and well, it's a a criticism in the form of a question, uh, from a 20-year-old guy named Matthew Qualls. And what happened was that Sheriff Entrekin took some of this prison food money, paid it to Mr. Qualls to mow his personal lawn. He decided to hire this guy to come and do some landscaping around his house. That was what that sheriff was doing. Well, you will be shocked and amazed that a mere four days after those comments were made public criticizing the sheriff, Mr. Qualls has now been arrested and is facing life in prison. Yes, if you can believe that. Uh, So from the story, it says, quote, A 20-year-old man was arrested last week and charged with drug trafficking four days after AL.com published comments he made criticizing Etowah County Sheriff Todd Entrekin. Matthew Qualls questioned why Entrekin paid him to mow the lawn at Entrekin's personal home using taxpayer funds allocated for the feeding of inmates in the county jail. Entrekin confirmed that he personally pocketed some of those funds. Police say the arrest began with an anonymous tip, and I'm putting that in air quotes here behind the mic if you couldn't tell. Uh, Officers with the Rainbow City Police Department and the Etowah County Drug Enforcement Unit arrested Qualls on February 22nd after responding to an anonymous call reporting the odor of marijuana emanating from within a Rainbow City apartment. The Drug Enforcement Unit, which is a team of agents assigned from the sheriff's office, accompanied the police to the apartment because they were responding to a drug-related call. Officers arrested Qualls after they allegedly found 1,042 grams of cannabis, and that is in quotes in the article, uh, in his possession. Now, that's a lot of weed, but what you will find out is that basically this guy was baking weed brownies, and they decided to count the entire brownie as cannabis. So all the cocoa, the butter, everything else, they're treating the entire thing as weed, which is beyond stupid, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, The story continues, quote, Rainbow City Police Captain John Bryant said that his department only charged Qualls with second-degree marijuana possession, possessing drug paraphernalia, and felony possession of a controlled substance, in this case, Adderall pills that the guy had on him. Uh, But, of course, the media continued to actually look and see what actually happened, and it says, quote, But records on the county sheriff's office website show that Entrekin's office charged Qualls with three additional crimes, another paraphernalia charge, another felony possession of a controlled substance charge, and the kicker, felony drug trafficking, which is, you know, Alabama locks people up for life for that stuff. Uh, So Godspeed to this young man. He spoke truth to power and is now riding in a jail cell because of it. Uh, Out of California, we have a lot of stuff here. And I have to forewarn y'all. 
that you're going to hear uh, some stories that are bad. We, we always go over this, but I'm reaching the point where some of them are just like LOL bad and, you know, in a, a not really funny kind of way. This is one of those stories. So two LAPD officers have pled no contest uh, to repeatedly raping multiple women while they were on duty. Uh, from the story in the LA Times, it says, quote, two Los Angeles police officers pleaded no contest Monday to sexually assaulting multiple women, often preying on victims while one partner served as the lookout as the other carried out an attack in their unmarked police car. In a downtown Los Angeles courtroom, officers Luis Valenzuela and James Nichols entered their no contest pleas to two counts apiece of forcible rape and two counts apiece of forcible oral copulation. The victims were multiple women aged 19 to 34 who were informants for drug investigators or had been recently arrested on suspicion of drug-related crimes. Some of the women said they feared arrest if they did not obey Nichols and Valenzuela's orders. Now, in the rest of the story, if you read the rest of it, these guys were charged with dozens, dozens of separate counts. They took a plea to these four counts apiece. So that's out of Los Angeles. In Pasadena, you have good guy with a gun edition. Uh, police officer Vaskin Gordikian has been federally indicted for illegally selling hundreds of guns and then lying about it to investigators. Uh, from the Pasadena newspaper, it says, quote, Gordikian surrendered to federal authorities Friday morning and appeared for an arraignment in a Los Angeles federal courthouse later that afternoon on allegations that he sold more than 100 firearms without a license over a three-year period. Gordikian was charged with dealing firearms without a license, making false statements during the purchase of firearms, and possession of an unregistered firearm, according to the indictment. He allegedly sold weapons throughout Los Angeles, Orange, and San Bernardino counties between March 2014 and February 2017, and he has also been charged with lying to investigators. Uh, out of San Francisco... We have Good Guy with a Gun Edition Part 2, except this is the first rule of Fisk version. Uh, for those of you who are new, the first rule of Fisk is that police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. Uh, in this case, they were chasing a guy who was wanted for murder. So this is a legitimate bad guy. He had killed one guy, was suspected in killing another. They found him in an RV along the side of a road in an occupied neighborhood. Uh, this guy fired twice. We don't know if they were in a particular direction, but the murderer fired his gun two times. And you see on body cam, seven officers fire more than 75 shots into the RV in the span of 15 seconds. Like it just, they unload a ton of bullets on this RV. And out of those 75 shots, they did not hit a single thing. Well, except the RV, of course. So didn't get the murderer, didn't get any bystanders, just absolutely nothing at all. It, it's impressive in terms of the abject failure to actually hit your target. So those are the stories out of California. In Colorado, we have a late entry in the Politicians Behaving Badly department that we covered last week. A Democrat state representative who became a Republican. It, it's a bit of a mess. Uh, but this guy named Steve Lebsock was impeached and removed from office for repeatedly sexually harassing multiple women, uh, but he was pissed that he was going to get kicked out 
so he changed his affiliation to a Republican right before they removed him so that the Republicans would get the seat replacement instead of the Democrats, like the height of petty bullshit. From the story in the Denver Post, it says, quote, As women who accused State Representative Steve Lebsock of harassment looked on inside a somber chamber, the Colorado House of Representatives on Friday expelled the lawmaker from office in a vote the likes of which hasn't been seen in more than a century. After a week of political infighting and complaints about due process, the vote brought to an abrupt conclusion the saga that began in November when State Representative Faith Winter became the first of five women to file complaints of sexual harassment against the former Democrat. And Friday morning, it was Winter who set the tone for what would be a difficult, emotional day at the state capitol. In her opening remarks, she told the House that voting to keep Lebsock in office would send a signal to women and victims of sexual harassment throughout the state that, subquote, our voices don't matter. Instead, by a 52-9 to vote, lawmakers sent a different message, making Lebsock the second legislator in the nation to be removed from office over harassment's over harassment, excuse me, allegations since the rise of the hashtag MeToo movement. Lipsock's accusers watched him, over a span of about seven hours, become a former state representative. And over the course of the rest of the article, you find out that this guy, like, rushed to change his registration, then came back to give the speech in his defense asking not to be expelled, you know, impeached and removed. Uh, and then he was removed, but then, surprise, he's now a Republican, so Republicans will get that particular seat in the Colorado State Legislature. Uh, out of Florida, you can, uh, what would we call this? I guess so this would be the, the ain't no systemic racism in this country, bih, files. Um, basically, a middle school teacher has been discovered to be a uh, white nationalist and has a white nationalist podcast. From the story out of Florida, it says, quote, Diana Volatich a 25-year-old social studies teacher at Crystal River Middle School in Florida, has been secretly hosting the white nationalist podcast Unapologetic under the pseudonym Tiana Dalachov and bragging about teaching her views in a public school. In her most recent podcast on February 26th, a guest railed against diversity in schools, dismissing the idea that, subquote, a kid from Nigeria and a kid who came from Sweden are supposed to learn exactly the same, and have the same IQ. Volatich enthusiastically agreed with the guest and went on to argue that science has proven that certain races are smarter than others. In the same episode, Volatich boasted about bringing her white nationalist beliefs into the classroom and hiding her ideology from administrators. She said that when parents complained to the school's principal about how she is injecting political bias into the classroom, Volatich lied to the principal and said it was not true. Subquote, she believed me and backed off, Volatich said. Volatich also agreed with her guest's assertion that more white supremacists need to infiltrate public schools and become teachers. Subquote, they don't have to be vocal about their views, but get in there. Be more covert and just start taking over those places. And the uh, Volatich responded, right, I am absolutely one of them. So keep in mind, when we talk about systemic racism and how people of color are treated uh, disproportionately at every stage of pretty much everything that involves much of anything at all, whether it's the school-to-prison pipeline or police or firefighters, which you'll hear more about in a minute, um, that has an impact. It has a cumulative impact at every stage of the process, and our criminal justice system and our education system both are uniquely bad at it. Uh, out of Largo... 
the uh, defense attorney decided to take being a weed lawyer to a level that even I cannot match. From the story, it says, quote, Watching from her bench during a recent trial, Pinellas Circuit Judge Chris Hellinger noticed defense attorney Tobias Pardue's bizarre behavior. Pardue was making snorting sounds and resting his head on the lectern while questioning witnesses. He also left the courthouse in the middle of jury deliberations. I am very concerned that you have conducted this trial high, Hellinger told him at court on February 14th. All of these things are abhorrent and bizarre and strange. So Hellinger gave Pardue two options. He could take a drug test or spend 10 days in jail. He took the test, which came back positive for two substances. Additional drug analysis will be discussed at a hearing next week. Yikes. Out of Georgia. Well, before we get into this story, let me give you some backstory. So, of course, there's been continued discussion, debate, uproar over gun control. Um, the NRA, Wayne LaPierre, gave a particularly unhinged speech at CPAC. And in response, Delta Airlines ended their discount program for NRA members because they felt that if they continued to have one, it would be seen as taking sides in the gun control debate. So instead, they're just not going to have anything one way or the other. They will treat NRA people just like they treat normal customers. Well, this story is rooted in that because basically your small government Republicans, nominally, uh, totally lost their shit in Georgia. And as part of a tax bill, rescinded a tax break that had been inserted that would have benefited Delta relating to ta sales taxes on jet fuel. That has now been stripped out, and the lieutenant governor actually sent out a tweet that he was doing it on purpose to punish Delta for ending the NRA discount program. From the story, it says, quote, Governor Nathan Deal signed legislation to lower state income tax rates on Friday, giving quiet approval to a measure that caused a national uproar after Georgia lawmakers punished Delta Airlines for rescinding discounts for National Rifle Association members. Deal didn't hold a news conference or bill signing ceremony in what amounted to an anticlimactic end to legislation that roiled the statehouse and became part of the national debate on gun violence throughout the week. House Bill 918 easily passed the state Senate and state House on Thursday, a day after Senate leaders stripped a provision to eliminate sales taxes on jet fuel, something Delta had coveted. The jet fuel break, worth more than $40 million to Delta and millions to other airlines, was axed after the Atlanta corporate giant publicly nixed a discount for NRA members over the weekend. Now, let me tell you all a secret about how sales taxes work. Those costs for a business don't get paid by the business. They get paid by consumers because that's just how this works. When they're setting prices, you have to factor in the cost that you have to run the business. When I set my rates to represent people at my law firm, I have to factor in what I have to pay my landlord for rent, what I have to pay the state bar for my license, what I have to pay the government in various forms of taxes. So essentially, your politicians in Georgia have decided that if you want to fly, you need to pay more money because Delta is not catering to NRA, the NRA, which I don't even know how many members they have in Georgia, but it can't be that many compared to the entire traveling populace. So if you happen to uh, be voting this coming November, I would suggest voting out of office every single politician who approved this particular piece of fuckery. Uh, out of Illinois and Chicago, ICE is at it again, deporting super dangerous aliens. Uh, they end up getting sued this time. So the American Civil Liberties Union, this is from the story, 
accused the U.S. government on Monday of unlawfully separating a Congolese woman and her seven-year-old daughter by holding them in different immigration facilities, the mother in San Diego, the child in Chicago, after they sought asylum four months ago. Now, the, I'm not going to give you the whole story, but the gist of it is this. So these women and her daughter were on the verge of being executed in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It used to be Zaire. It was a French colony. So they were going to be killed. They managed to get out of the country. They went to the port at San Diego. And when they got there, they didn't try to sneak in. They actually went straight to the immigration officers and applied for asylum. Now, the way that process works is that you have an officer on site who does a preliminary analysis to decide whether or not someone is substantially likely to receive asylum. And if they are, you do some paperwork and you let them into the country as they go through the process. Well, essentially what happened was the officer said, yes, you are substantially likely to receive asylum. Come on in. They sent the daughter into a separate room and then after that happened, said, LOL, JK, fuck you, and put the mom in handcuffs and carted her off to a detention facility as they carted the daughter off to a different detention facility in Chicago, Illinois. Now, those of you who are not uh, American or not familiar with the geography of the country who still listen to this podcast, uh, California and Illinois are pretty fucking far apart. To people who aren't from here and don't have the means to travel, it's, it's a very long distance. Like, it would probably take the better part of a day if you decided to drive. You know what I mean? Uh, so this is just yet another example that our beloved Papaya POTUS, Donald Trump, and his Immigrations and Customs Enforcement hacks, they're not deporting the bad hombres, as he calls them. They're not deporting actual dangerous people. They continue to pluck the low-hanging fruit to deport people who are vulnerable or have committed no crimes and are actively seeking out immigration officials, doing what they are supposed to do as part of the system, and getting rid of them so that he can boost his numbers, and when he runs for re-election, he can say, look at all these illegal aliens I've deported from the country. It is a terrible policy that, to me, doesn't represent America at all. But aside from that, aside from the outrage of picking people who've done nothing wrong, who have followed the process we put in place, and choosing them to be the ones to deport. How utterly inhumane is it that you separate a seven-year-old girl from her mother and ship her all the way across the country so that even if mom could get out, how the fuck is she going to get to Chicago? They've apparently talked four times on the phone. The girl is perpetually in tears because she has no clue where her mom went and what's going on. They don't allow them to do video visitation in immigrant detention facilities. And, of course, she can't get out because they're stuck in this Kafka-esque Byzantine mess that we have when it comes to immigration policy in this country. It's fucking embarrassing. Uh, out of Kansas... Another ain't-no-systemic racism in this country entry. We'll call this the remix. Uh, a firefighter called a three-year-old child the N-word and spat on him at a restaurant and then tried to hide behind his badge to say that it was okay. From the story, it says, quote, KCTV5 News spoke to a witness who was at the restaurant, and the witness said he was dumbfounded by a statement the firefighter made to police. He said, he, this is a subquote. he basically said, get that little blank up off the floor. The N-word started to get thrown around. 
The witness said he saw a child wander away from his family, and when the family member came to retrieve the preschool-aged kid is when another customer used a racial slur and spat at the child. He thought a physical altercation would follow, but instead police were called to the restaurant. The comment left the witness speechless, but the witness said he was even more shocked when police came inside to interview the man in question, who told police he was a first responder. Subquote, I didn't catch what the officer said to him, but his immediate response was, it's okay, I'm a fireman. Like that was supposed to blanket cover everything for him, the witness said. Now, you might notice we've talked about racist firefighters before. It's actually a really common theme on this program. Uh, we'll give you links in the show notes. I, I know off the top of my head, you had the one in Florida that said saving a black person was less important than saving like a thousand dogs. Or maybe that was the guy in Ohio. Yeah, the Florida firefighters were the ones that put the noose on the guy's desk. The one in Ohio was the one that said saving dogs was more important. And then you had the one in New York that got a promotion for being a racist. So we'll give you links to all those in the show notes. You can check those out. Uh, in Kentucky, more politicians behaving badly. Uh, in this case, there was a bill to stop baby rapers, and that was actually blocked in the state legislature. From the story, it says, quote, A bill to make 18 the legal age for marriage in Kentucky has stalled in a Senate committee amid concerns about the, about the rights of parents to allow children to wed at a younger age. I'm going to give you a sidebar. The current legal age to get married in Kentucky is 13. I don't know what kind of self-respecting man would have any interest in a 13-year-old child, but to have that be the law and to fight changing the law because of parental rights, holy shit, Kentucky is as bad as every stereotype of Kentucky makes them out to be. Uh, it continues, known as the Child Bride Bill, Senate Bill 48 was pulled off the agenda hours before a scheduled vote by the Senate Judiciary Committee for the second time in two weeks. Subquote, this is legalized rape of children, said Eileen Rechtenwald, the executive director of the Kentucky Association of Sexual Assault Programs. We cannot allow that to continue in Kentucky, and I cannot believe we're even debating this in the year 2018 in the United States. I can't believe it either. It's fucking ridiculous. Wow. Uh, out of Louisiana, one of the inspirations for our podcast title this week, Carmageddon Police Edition, in Baton Rouge, the floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck that I've talked about before, living up to its reputation, an officer was speeding 94 miles an hour down the street, plows into an SUV, kills a one-year-old girl who is in there, and you will be shocked to find that they decided to charge the baby's mother, a passenger in the car, for homicide. From the story, it says, quote, Brittany Stevens, 20, was arrested Tuesday on negligent homicide after police found that in an October 12 wreck, her daughter's car seat was not secured properly and the straps were not adjusted correctly for the child's height. Police said the lack of securing the seat to the vehicle and the loose straps are a contributing factor in the death of the child and show gross negligence on the mother's part. The arrest came two weeks after Baton Rouge police officer Christopher Manuel, 28, was arrested on account of negligent homicide, the same count as the mother, uh, and for speeding. An investigation into the crash found Manuel's Corvette was traveling 94 miles an hour when he struck the SUV carrying Stevens, three other adults, and four children, including Stevens' one-year-old daughter, Sierra. Stevens was not the driver. 
LSU criminal law professor Ken Levy said that without knowing all the details, the arrest does, quote, seem to me unnecessary, if not mean-spirited, to go after the mother for the death of her child, despite the fact that Stevens played no role in the crash itself. He described the arrest as overreaching. It's very sad that a child died, but that doesn't mean that you go and punish as many people as possible for the child's death, he said. The principal culprit here is the officer. The mother is being blamed for this tragedy, and that just doesn't seem fair. Uh, Levy said the law would require prosecutors to prove gross negligence on Stevens' part and also prove that her daughter's death was the result of the car seat being improperly restrained. Guess what? Her daughter's death was the result of being hit at 94 miles an hour. Uh, former first assistant district attorney Prem Burns said she too found the arrest, subquote, hypertechnical and legally questionable. When you compare somebody traveling 90 miles an hour, striking that vehicle, who's willing to say that baby could have survived anything, Byrne said. Looking forward to that trial, because if the DA was smart, he would dismiss it out of hand. But one thing I've learned about covering Louisiana, they're not too bright, and they believe in locking up as many people as possible for as long as possible. Uh, Massachusetts, another first rule of Fisk out of Boston. Uh, Boston Police Department officer Zachary Crossan, who is part of their youth violence strike force, decided that he was just going to pick a random black man on the street and start asking him questions about whatever he wanted. And of course, this was all caught on the guy's camera. Uh, from the story in the Boston Globe, it says, quote, the video posted on Facebook captured a short and tense verbal exchange last week between a young black Roxbury man and a young white Boston police officer. In the recording, the officer asked the man's name, grilled him about where he lived, and quizzed him about why he wasn't at work on a weekday afternoon. The man was never accused of committing a crime. The man recording the incident on his smartphone asked why the officer wanted such details. The police department is looking into the incident, said spokesman Lieutenant Detective... Uh, Lute what the fuck is a Lieutenant Detective? Jesus, they give these guys too many fucking titles. Uh, Lieutenant Detective Michael McCarthy. McCarthy said the officers were in the area keeping watch on a house known for gun activity, and the man was known to police. And those are actually in quotes in the article. I, I'm sure they were. Uh, he was so known, in fact, that the officer fucked up the guy's name. The video shows Crossan wearing a Boston Bruins winter hat, yelling out at the man as he was walking by. You aren't Kevin by any chance, are you? Crossan asked. Kevin, Antonio, whose first name is Keith, responded, Nah. Crossan did not seem convinced. Are you sure? He asked, to which Antonio responded, of course. When Antonio asked why the officer was inquiring about his name, Crossan said that he looked like, quote, somebody we are looking to speak to. Then the officer got out of his car. As Antonio asked, quote, why are you stopping me? The conversation deteriorated from there. Crossan asked Antonio what he was doing on the street, if he was killing time, and what he was doing on the street around noon. Antonio said he was going to the barbershop and that he saw no reason to tell the officer where he lived or to give his name. The video shows Crossan pulling out his own phone and directing it at Antonio. Antonio gave Crossan the middle finger during the entire encounter, according to the police chief. Boo fucking who? I would give you the middle finger too if you just decided to randomly stop me in the middle of the street as I'm trying to go to the barbershop to get my head shaved. Fuck you. Uh, oh, sorry, I left this part out. The Boston Police Department Commissioner, William B. Evans, met with leaders in the city's black community Monday to discuss the video, do damage control, uh, and assured them, quote, the matter is being discussed and the officer is being counseled. 
given Boston's reputation, that counsel is probably just go ahead and shoot the guy so there are no witnesses. Uh, out of Michigan in Detroit, another inspiration for our podcast title, two Detroit Police Department officers caused a fatal crash as part of a high-speed chase. As a result of the crash, people died, and the officers just drove off without ever notifying dispatch that the chase was taking place or that medical care was going to be needed. From the story, it says, quote, Two Detroit police officers have been charged with willful neglect of duty in connection with a pursuit that ended in a fatal crash. Officers Stephen Hyde and Ronald Cadez will be arraigned next week. According to the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, Hyde and Cadez spotted a speeding vehicle and began to follow it, activating their overhead lights in an effort to stop it. The car was about a block and a half away from the officers when it crossed an intersection and collided with another vehicle. I'm going to put in parentheses here. That means that's an innocent bystander. Hyde and Cadez allegedly then left the scene and failed to notify the dispatcher that they were engaged in a pursuit. Authorities also alleged that they neglected their duty when they failed to respond at the scene of an accident. The driver of the car, a 19-year-old boy named Jerry Bradford Jr. of Detroit, was pronounced dead at a local hospital from injuries he suffered in the crash. So you not only have the driver dead over a speeding ticket, you have some unknown civilian who's got a car that's apparently pretty fucked up, and I'm sure they suffered injuries too, and these cowardly pieces of shit didn't even bother to notify dispatch. Uh, out of New York, the third inspiration for a podcast title, uh, New York Police Department officers ended up hitting a guy. They T-boned him at an intersection. And to try and cover it up, they framed him for DWI. And that guy has now cost the city taxpayers $1 million as part of a jury verdict. From the story, it says, quote, the latest city resident to cash in on police misconduct would raise a glass to toast his victory, except he doesn't drink. The NYPD found that out the hard way when cops tried to charge Oliver Wiggins with driving while intoxicated to cover up for a police officer who ran a marked SUV through a Brooklyn stop sign and plowed into Wiggins's car. Wiggins received close to a million dollars from the city for his troubles, but not before he was arrested and charged with impaired driving, had his driver's license suspended, and was hit with a repair bill for his 2004 Nissan Maxima that his insurance company would not cover because of the DWI arrest. Never mind that a breathalyzer test he took at the scene showed no alcohol in his blood. While at the hospital after the crash, Wiggins even volunteered to have his blood tested for alcohol or drugs. That test came back negative. Reports from the EMT and the DWI technician each said Wiggins had no signs of intoxication. But that didn't stop the arresting officer, Justin Joseph, from officially reporting Wiggins had slurred speech, watery eyes, an odor of alcohol on his breath, and was observed swaying. Three months later, prosecutors dismissed those DWI charges. No charges have been filed against the cops. I know you are shocked by that. You will also be shocked to know that, quote, all of the officers involved are still employed by the department. Uh, also with the NYPD, we have Officer Anthony Avoso has been charged with seven counts of public lewdness for repeatedly pulling out his dick to harass women. From the story, it says, quote, a married NYPD officer exposed himself to at least five female colleagues at different times over the course of a year once flashing a probationary officer while asking her about her career goals. 
Officer Anthony Avoso, 31, who has three, three kids, repeatedly whipped out his erect penis in front of female cops assigned to the 60th Precinct between September 2006 and February, prosecutors allege. Avoso, a 10-year veteran, or Avoso, I, I probably have pronounced his name at least three different times in the span of this very short segment. Uh, it's A-V-O-S-S-O. Uh, Avoso, a 10-year veteran assigned to the aggressive plainclothes anti-crime unit, even masturbated in a squad car until the female officer on patrol with him had to leave the vehicle. Now, this is a very common thing with the NYPD whipping your dick out to harass people. You might recall we had at least two different prior episodes about one of them, uh, a guy that flashed kids walking into a church and then ended up, as that investigation was going on, found out he was repeatedly whipping his dick out to flash even more women. It's a common theme among the NYC uh, police department. So y'all have fun up there. Out of North Carolina, we've got a lot of stories in my home state. The first one, uh, more than 15,000 rape kits have never been tested, according to a new report compiled by the Attorney General's office from the News and Observer. Uh, actually, no, I think this one is WRAL. It says, quote, law enforcement agencies across North Carolina have more than 15,000 rape kits in evidence that have never been tested, according to a report released Wednesday. A provision in the state budget that was passed last summer called for the state crime lab to collect data from police departments and sheriff's offices statewide on how many rape kits were sitting untested on shelves and to include the reasons they haven't been tested. In 3,820 of the cases, the sexual assault allegations were determined to be unfounded, while charges had been resolved either through conviction or dismissal in another 2,741. Suspects in 1,054 cases admitted to the sexual contact, so there was no reason to test the kit, and 390 victims wished to remain anonymous and didn't want to file a police report. Now, if you're good at doing math in your head... You might notice that 3820 plus 2741 plus 1054 plus 390 comes out to a number that is a lot less than 15,000. And the reason why is that, quote, authorities provided no reason at all whatsoever for the lack of testing for about half of the 15,160 untested kits at the end of 2017. Uh, out of Asheville, this is going to be an I told you so moment. I try not to be too obnoxious with these, but back in 2016, our state legislature passed a bill called H-972 that essentially made all police video secret under state law. You could no longer get it under a public records request. This bill was almost unanimously supported by both Republicans and Democrats. So out of our 50 senators, only one Republican voted no, only one Democrat voted no. Uh, I don't recall the exact count in the House. I think it was 12 Republicans voted no and seven Democrats out of 120 total legislators. Uh, so here in Durham, both of our Democrat senators voted yes, and four of our six Democrat representatives voted yes, and we have no Republican legislators in this county at all. Uh, and as part of that bill, which was terrible, it was an objectively bad bill, poorly written. I don't know why all the Democrats got on board about it. I know why the Republicans did, because they're in hock to the police unions. Um, what I said was, you're not going to get body cam video of police doing things wrong anymore unless one of two things happen. 
either the police violate the law themselves and illegally release the video like the Charlotte Mecklenburg police did with the extrajudicial summary execution of Keith Scott, uh, or you will have people break the law and risk prosecution to leak it to the press. And that is what has happened in this case. Uh, an officer beat the everlasting shit out of an unarmed black man for jaywalking, and it was all caught on video that got leaked to the media. From the story in the Asheville Citizen Times, says, quote, Police said an investigation would be needed into who leaked police body camera footage and a memo about the beating of a resident by a city police officer. Notice that start. So the police don't care about what happened. The DA you're going to find doesn't care about what happened. They want to care about who leaked this information. Uh, it could, story continues, quote, that is according to statements by police chief Tammy Hooper on Wednesday, the same day the Citizen Times published a version of the body camera footage along with the story that used information from the memo. City officials and community leaders who first learned of the August 24th incident through the media report, meaning the police hid this from the legislative branch that is supposed to be exercising oversight over the police. So this is the first they learned about it after the media report. They said they were, quote, outraged at the beating and that police had not notified them about it or the ongoing police investigation into the actions of the officer. Hooper, on Thursday, issued an apology to Johnny Jermaine Rush, who was shown in the video being pinned on the ground and beaten by Officer Chris Hickman after a stop for jaywalking. But in an independent statement to the Citizen Times, Hooper said release of the memo and video depicting the incident was illegal. It is unlawful for us to do that. So that points to another type of investigation that would have to go on around that, she said. District Attorney Todd Williams, in a Thursday press release and tweet, criticized the release of the information and backed the idea of an investigation. Quote, the extrajudicial release of evidence in this case prior to the completion of the investigation, such as the body cam video, risks compromising a potential future prosecution of involved officers and may require its own independent investigation. Now, look, I don't prosecute. I do defense work. But here's the deal. If the video was subject to proper chain of custody it doesn't jeopardize a future prosecution at all. Worst case scenario, you taint your jury pool and you have to change venue to a neighboring county where no one's actually seen it. But the prosecution is still going to go forward if they want to do that. The catch is this particular district attorney doesn't want to do that. Now, you'll be shocked, I'm sure, to know that this is actually a pretty normal thing in Asheville. It's touted as a hippie liberal mecca. But the reality is the city is very segregated. There's a ruling white liberal caste in place, and they don't particularly care about people of color. And I mentioned this on Twitter a while back. This is actually the very city where police roam black neighborhoods with openly brandished AR-15 assault rifles as a show of force. If you've missed that discussion, check out my Twitter feed. Do a search for Asheville. You'll see some stuff there. Out of Charlotte, the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department apparently taking a page out of the Durham County Sheriff's Office playbook by having a baby raper on their staff. From the story, it says, quote, the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department held an impromptu press conference Tuesday afternoon to address, sub quote, egregious charges made against a member of their team. 
CMPD has charged 54-year-old Officer Matthew E. Porter with eight counts of first-degree sex offense and 20 counts of indecent liberties with a minor. The charges were made against the officer by a now 17-year-old Nevada resident who claimed she was sexually assaulted when she lived in Charlotte between the years of 2010 and 2013. Uh, From the uh, chief says, quote, we believe she was between 10 and 11 at the time. Uh, Police interviewed this particular officer and basically discovered that he did it and decided to charge him with sex offense, which is our... Uh, version of the rape statute, but it's broader. So we covered in a prior podcast the history of North Carolina's rape laws. Our So rape was only vaginal intercourse. Sex offense covers everything. So intercourse, fellatio, anal, whatever. Uh, that's all covered. It's the exact same punishment. So it's a much easier crime to successfully prosecute on. But this guy is on unpaid leave. He's actually not getting a paid vacation, surprisingly enough. And we'll see how this case turns out. Uh, Out of Virginia, the Chesterfield County Police pulled over a black college student at Virginia State University for running a red light. They had him get out of the car because supposedly the car smelled like marijuana. Uh, Asked him if he had anything on him. He mentions that he has a knife and immediately... The officer's partner pulls out a gun and holds it on the kid for nearly a minute. They then go on to search the car. There's no actual weed in the car, so the basis for this kid getting out of the car was bullshit. Uh, And then, on top of that, he doesn't even get charged for running the red light. Well, it turns out that the student's mother was Yisha Callahan, who's a deputy managing editor of The Root, who's a, as a journalist, she knows how to file Freedom of Information Act requests. She asked for a copy of the video. The police refused to provide it. And the reason why, so there are a couple reasons why, and they're all bullshit, but it's funny how you can pay attention to the shifting rationales. Uh, Colonel Jeffrey S. Katz, who is the Chesterfield County Chief of Police, Uh, told the Richmond Times-Dispatch that part of the reason the department has not released the video to Callahan is that she, quote, has an anti-law enforcement agenda. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. He's refusing to release the video because she doesn't like cops. Well, no shit. If you pulled over my son and had him get out of the car on a bogus pretext and then your partner pointed a gun at him, you know, I'd probably have an anti-cop agenda too. Uh, And then, so that was the chief who gave that particular rationale. Well, then the department spokeswoman, Elizabeth Caroon, said instead that investigations are exempt from Virginia's Freedom of Information Act law, and it's the departmental practice not to release that information, including videos related to the investigation. Now, that part's not unusual. That was actually a common thing in North Carolina as well. But here is my question. What the fuck are you investigating when you didn't charge him with drugs and you didn't charge him for the red light violation? What other potential crimes could he have caused? There is no investigation anymore. It's over and done with. Release the video. So that is out of Virginia. Folks, that concludes the abbreviated state-by-state criminal justice fuckery that I was able to piece together for this particular podcast. Let's go ahead and jump into the quartet of questions I got for What the Fisk. This is going to be a mini What the Fisk, Volume 6. So every now and again, we do episodes where I try to answer your questions. You know, sometimes we call these mailbags 
Uh, by we, I mean like other podcasters. I don't call them that because I don't like that particular phrase. Uh, we call it What the Fisk or WT Fisk. And I had asked for questions to see if we could do a full What the Fisk episode in lieu of me trying to compile criminal justice fuckery because I didn't know if I was going to have the time to do it this weekend. And we got some. So I'm using that in place of the Law 140. And I'm also restructuring the order a little bit. I usually end up putting the anonymous stuff that comes via the DMs later. And then I do the name tweets first. Uh, But I'm going to end up putting them interspersed because of the topics that happen to be, well, a lot of the topics overlap, but the particular wording of the questions, which you're going to hear in a minute. Uh, so for the first one we have is from at Yesagumi. You've heard him in prior with the Fisks. Uh, he's talking about the Alabama case where that particular guy has now been charged with felony drug trafficking after he criticized the sheriff's department. And he asks, quote, serious question. Once the charges are filed, How far in due process do you have to get before it's reasonably sure that the institution is going along? Hashtag Amabala. And I want to to claim credit for that because I said that Alabama was so backwards we needed to start calling it Amabala. Uh, So to answer that question, if the charges actually end up proceeding, it's a pretty fair bet that the district attorney's office is in on it. So normally, in most jurisdictions, for most cases... Uh, either sheriff's office or police have the ability to charge someone right away without having to go through the process of having the grand jury indict, you know, whatever else. And the way they do that to make that uh, comport with the rights of due process that are in the Constitution, um, your Sixth Amendment right to be indicted by a grand jury, is that in most spots, the felony cases, the serious things, will start in the lower-level courts. Everything will start in district court. That's how it works in North Carolina. So if you murder somebody, the initial murder charge will start in district court because the police have the power to do that, and then the district attorney will present it to a grand jury to get what is called a superseding indictment. So they'll indict you on the crime to comply with the Sixth Amendment, and the district court case will be dismissed, and you'll now proceed under this new case. So if you have a situation like this kid in Alabama now being charged with his felony drug trafficking, the DA as an office has the power to dismiss those cases pretty much right away or to charge them with something else. The DA can always adjust the charges. And if it happens to be a felony, you go through the process of getting the grand jury indictment, but they can just swap out whatever the police charge them with with whatever else they want. So if you see the district attorney's office in this particular jurisdiction continue prosecuting this case, it means that they basically agree with what the sheriff's office has done in a nutshell. Uh, So thank you for the question at Yasagumi. The other one is one of the anonymous questions, and it was actually part of an extended back and forth about our gun control episode. And it says, quote, regardless of your thoughts on gun control, which I mentioned we'd already gone back and forth quite a bit about. Do you think anything will actually happen this time? And I'm going to give you a part lawyer answer because the word happen is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that particular question because some things have already happened. I mean, you've had uh, Walmart say they're not going to sell guns to anyone under 21. Dick's Sporting Goods has said the same. Um, I'm taking this question to mean do I think anything legislatively is going to happen as a result of this debate? And I think the answer to that is no. 
and there are a few reasons why I would think that. One, of course, is people who think now is the time to actually get the change, they're basing that in part on the fact that the student victims who are still alive have been very outspoken on social media and in the press. The reason why I don't think that tends to work is because those types of advocates for policy, uh, they work initially, but over time they tend to annoy the people that are either against the proposed policy change or are ambivalent because they just get so much media saturation that voters just kind of tune them out. And I think that's going to be a very heavy risk with these students. You're kind of seeing some of that already with the pushback that the students are getting. They're very snarky, which is great, but over time that becomes annoying to your middle-of-the-road voters. And, of course, your pro-gun voters aren't going to support policy change anyway. So that's the first problem, is that the victims are going to end up overexposing themselves in the media to the point where they lose their effectiveness. The second problem is that if you look at the polling, most people in the country see this particular shooting in Florida as a failure of the government because so many red flags were raised. He was reported to police so many times. The sheriff, Scott Israel or Steve Israel, whatever his name is, is a dick who's repeatedly fucked up. Uh, And that's gotten into the press. So when most people talk, they'll say access to guns is a problem. But they're more likely to say that the reason for the shooting was that the government didn't do its job, which makes it an easy argument for the other side to say, look, we don't need more gun control. We need to actually comply with the laws as they exist. And then the third thing is just politics. I mean, for better or worse, whatever you think of Barack Obama, uh, he enabled pretty significant Republican victories at the state legislative level. You had a lot of Democrats in Congress and in state legislatures after George W. Bush because of the Iraq war and Hurricane Katrina and everything else, Democrats were riding high pretty much everywhere. And then in the 2010 midterms, Democrats got shellacked. And a lot of these state legislatures that Republicans took over, everyone's going through the census and redistricting and, of course, gerrymandering. The GOP ensured that they had continued strength, enabled them to uh, withstand any possible repercussions in the 2012 elections when Obama was back on the ticket. And that power is still present. Democrats aren't going to have a real chance to get that back really until 2020. They can do some damage in the midterms because Donald Trump is just that bad. But trying to tangibly shift, you know, you have a lot of state legislators that state legislatures that are under one party control. You have some like North Carolina where Republicans have super majorities. So regardless of who the governor is, the legislature can do what it wants. And you're not really going to see much legislation move in that case, in my opinion. I mean, I could be wrong, but I would not expect any significant policy changes either by Congress or state legislatures arising out of this particular situation. So thank you for that particular question. The next one is also on gun control from at Mad Scientist RMH. He says, hey, Greg, I'm curious your thoughts on the Georgia State Legislature's communications regarding Delta's NRA stance. Are there legal issues with the government legislating based on corporate politics? And the answer to that is going to be probably not. And the reason why relates to a case we've talked about before. So if you remember in our earlier episode on the Muslim ban, and the Department of Justice's arguments to the court citing Palmer versus Thompson. 
which is a Supreme Court case that upheld closing of public pools when they were required to be integrated. Uh, basically, the courts ruled they had to be integrated, and I think it was Mississippi politicians decided they were just going to close the pools outright. And the Supreme Court said that that was fine. That did not violate the 14th Amendment because the pool was closed to everybody. And there wasn't a way for the justices to figure out how many of the legislators were voting to close the pool because they were racist versus how many were doing it to save money or some other reason. Um, In this particular case, you end up with something similar to that. So Delta was not targeted directly at least in the legislation. They were targeted directly in the public tweets, but the proposed law was going to change the sales taxes to end sales taxes on jet fuel. The fact that that was taken out, you end up with a Palmer versus Thompson type scenario. How many of the legislators who voted for that did it because they were upset over the NRA versus not wanting to give them a tax break anyway, versus just not liking Delta because they had a bad experience independent of the NRA stuff. Uh, It's one of those things that the courts are not going to find any repercussions there. In addition, another reason why they're not going to find anything wrong is that it involved a proactive change in the law. So by leaving the law as it is, regardless of your particular reason why, A court's not going to compel the legislature to go forward with changing the law in terms of, you know, adjusting tax rates or whatever else. They're just going to leave the tax rates exactly where they are. So for better or worse, nothing is going to come about legally for the particular actions of the Georgia legislature. It's just one of those things where if you want to change it, you got to vote for new people in November. So at Mad Scientist RMH, thank you for that question. And our fourth and final question was a direct message. Uh, It says, quote, I'm sharing this privately because I don't trust that you won't say something rude in response, and I'd rather not that not happen publicly. I found your podcast through a retreat, and I've listened to five episodes. I'm interested in the content, but I wish you engaged in civil discourse instead of calling people names who disagree or ask questions about your views on gun control. Are you arrogant and belittling on purpose? Is it possible for someone to hold different views and not be a moron? Uh, So I'm leaving this person's name out for their benefit because that is why they sent it to me privately because I am going to say something rude in response. Fuck you. That would be my response. So I don't recall calling anybody names who disagrees with me on gun control. If you have taken offense at something I've said on this podcast, then you're probably reading a bit too much into it. You know, the only person I call names on a regular basis is our beloved Papaya POTUS, Donald Trump, and Attorney General Beauregard. Beyond that, I disagree with people all the time. I talk to them on Twitter. Is it possible for someone to hold different views and not be a moron? Go hang out on my fucking Twitter feed. Most of the people listening to this podcast don't agree with me on gun control and a whole host of other stuff. And yet, we still have discussions every day, and it ends up being just fine. Am I arrogant and belittling on purpose? Yes, I absolutely am. If you hear this and I come across as arrogant or belittling, that means that you yourself are one of the uninformed people who think that because everyone is entitled to an opinion, all of those opinions are entitled to equal respect, and they're not. I've covered this before. All right, I try not to talk too much about things that I don't know and don't understand. Now, that there's an exception for general political stuff because all of us talk about general political stuff. But like, I don't go into too much detail 
about anything relating to gender or LGBT stuff because I just don't know about it. And I would feel limited in my ability to offer any kind of rational commentary about something that I have no actual insight on. I can talk a little bit more about race stuff because I did go to a historically black law school for three years, happened to be in in a profession where it's at the forefront of everything we deal with. And after years of doing this, I've picked up some stuff from the research literature and everything else. So I'm a little bit better versed on that. And I can talk at length about criminal justice because fuck's sake, I do it every day. But I don't opine about things I don't know that much about because I don't want to sound like an idiot. If you're one of those people that is totally fine sounding like an idiot, that's cool. You have that right under the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. The government can't do anything to you for it. But I am perfectly allowed to call you a moron because that's essentially what you are. You want to have opinions, but you don't want to understand anything relating to the things you have opinions on. You want to lose weight, but you don't want to know how calories work. That's the example I gave in the episode a few days ago. So I appreciate the question, but the fact is you are one of those particular morons if that's what you think this is about. If you have somehow listened to five episodes as you claim, and that's what you come away with, if you follow me on Twitter and don't notice the multiple people that I debate with every day and yet still respect then you're just not really paying attention. I mean, I'll give a shout out to Rachel. Rachel argues with me about a whole bunch of stuff. Isaac Rabinovich on Twitter, that guy argues with me about everything. And yet I still respect them and I still respond back to them. I mean, there's a a wide, wide list, you know? Uh, I'm not even gonna go through the list of everyone on Twitter because I would, by naming people, I inevitably leave people out. But most of my Twitter interactions are people who are either conservatives who agree with me on conservative things but really, really hate my take on criminal justice stuff, or they're flaming liberals who love my take on criminal justice stuff but hate my takes on everything else. And if you come at me with a, you know, not calling me names, not assuming that I'm in, you know, acting in bad faith and you want to have a discussion and debate, we can do that because I enjoy that. You know, it's, it, there's this piece in scripture that says, uh, iron sharpens iron. Me debating with y'all makes my arguments better, makes me a more effective advocate. That's part of what lawyers do. So, anyway, I, I didn't mean to go off on quite too much of a rant for that particular question. Not even really the question, just the framing of the question. I don't trust that you won't belittle me publicly. Well, great, so don't come at me publicly, and we won't have that problem. But to assume that I do that all the time means you're not really paying attention because there are all kinds of people that I disagree with that I give reasoned responses to. The people I make fun of publicly on Twitter are usually the ones calling me a child murderer because I happen to have a gun or people calling me a traitor because I oppose President Trump and whatever else. You'll notice a theme to the people I mock and it's because they don't offer anything worth legitimately responding to. Uh, So those are the four questions for what we're going to call a mini What the Fisk, Volume 6. That concludes the question and answer session, which also concludes this particular podcast. So folks, thank you so much for listening. I'm hoping the audio turns out okay. I have no clue how this is going to turn out because I've got to go to bed so that I can get up and drive back to North Carolina tomorrow. So basically I'm emailing this to uh, Mike, the sound guy, tonight, and the magic internet gnomes will either do their work and he'll have everything fixed and uploaded, or it's not, and you're just going to 
get whatever, whenever. Uh, but thank you so much for listening. Hopefully this turns out all right. Let me know. You know, Send us a tweet, at Fiskamall. Send me a message, a DM, if you don't want to be identified publicly. And let me know your thoughts. So thank you so much for listening. And on behalf of Mike, the sound guy back in North Carolina, and me right here in Atlanta, Georgia, thank you for listening again. I know it's like the fourth time I've said that, and I will talk to you next week.